as we come to God's word again. Let's just bow our hearts one more time. Father, as we prepare now just to come and study your word together, Lord, speak to us, we pray. Father, we thank you that it is your word that has revealed to us who you are, your goodness and your grace and your majesty. Father, we can look around this world and we can see the evidence of God in creation. The word speaks of the invisible attributes of God being clearly seen and understood by the things that are made. But it's, Lord, your word that reveals who you are. It's your word that reveals our Savior, Jesus. And this morning as we study this incredible vision that John had received, Lord, help us to see Jesus in a new way. Help us to see Jesus, Lord, like we've never seen before. The one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So, Lord, stir our hearts, we pray. Father, speak to us through your Spirit. Lord, we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing, obviously, our study in the book of Revelation. We started last week, and uh, we're still in the kind of introduction to the book, really. Uh, Just a couple of things to uh, remind you of, and to mention again, the book begins with the Greek word apocalypsis. Uh, That's translated in our translations as revelation. Um, It's from where we get our our word that we use today, apocalypse. But the problem is that word today has almost uh, been twisted in regard to its meaning. You know, the modern understanding is some sort of cataclysmic event. That's how we tend to see that word. But really the word simply means unveiling. That's why it's translated as revelation. It's unveiling something. And as we go through, we see that the book unveils Jesus in glory and majesty and in a way that had not been seen before. The book shows us Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now we become quite familiar with those terms because we hear it. But this is really quite an incredible vision that John is going to receive as we're going to look at this morning. You know, John had walked the, the shores of Galilee and climbed the hills of Judea with Jesus. He'd been a friend of Jesus. He'd seen Jesus after the resurrection. But nothing could have prepared him for what he's about to see as we study this morning. The book foretells, as we mentioned last time, the end of Satan's rule on planet Earth. And although, in a sense, when we think of Revelation, we tend to think of uh, the whole satanic side of things. We think of Antichrist and a one-world church, a one-world government. We think often of um, the mark of the beast, and then we start to think of judgment. And, of course, all of those things are included. But we must never lose the central focus of the book, which is Jesus. But the book does give us the end of Satan's rule. It also shows the end of those false religious systems and the end of the world's political systems. And it will also clearly show the destiny of the church. That's you and I. It will show the destiny of the nation of Israel. A a situation that really has occurred now that we have such a, a debate, even within the Christian church, over Israel's place. And really there shouldn't be that debate because scripture is very clear about God's love for the nation of Israel. I was talking to a a Muslim this week, and their perception um, may surprise some of you. They believe Israel were God's chosen nation. They believe that God had specifically called and ordained them. And that Israel were given these wonderful promises and blessings, but they forfeited them. Well, that's exactly what Scripture says. The problem is, they don't go on to look at the end of Deuteronomy. They get to Deuteronomy 28, and they're quite happy to talk about the curses that came upon the nation. But then when you move on to Deuteronomy 31 and so on, and when it talks about God restoring the nation, well, the response to that was, well, 
they don't accept that, they don't believe that. And incredibly, most of the church, when I say most of the church, don't accept that. At the time of the Reformation, we of course rediscovered that doctrine of being saved by grace alone. But there were many other things that were left undone, and one of them was the whole subject, the scholars use the term eschatology, it just means the study of the end, the, the end days, the last, the last times on earth. And of course, it's so detailed in scripture, but it was something that the Catholic Church had very much twisted. Um, we go all the way back to people like Augustine and the uh, allegorization of scripture and the way that they try to explain some of these things and the whole amillennial view. And we'll talk more about those ideas. If you're not familiar, don't worry for now. We'll talk about it later in our study, not this morning, but as we go through the book. But that led on to a very confused view of what God is going to do with the nation of Israel. And many Christians today think that God has finished with them. Well, as we go through this book, we'll clearly see that that's not the case. We'll also see that the destiny of all unbelievers, and we'll see how God, as a just judge, will deal with those who are unwilling to accept the remedy that he's provided. You see, we've said before that nobody will go to hell on account of their sin, because Jesus has paid for sin. We're told that in First John that he's the propitiation, the payment in full for our sins, speaking to believers, and for the sins of the whole world. That's what John tells us. Jesus has paid for sin. It's been done. All you have to do is accept. And incredibly, we have so many people in the world, and we'll talk more in a while, about this that are unwilling to turn to Jesus. <clears throat> there are, of course, these two books in the Bible that have been attacked more than any other. The Genesis, of course, and we're familiar, and we have so many Christians that even struggle with the, the first 11 chapters and will reject them. And of course, evolutionists and so on will try and tear Genesis apart. It's the book of beginnings though, and it exposes Satan as the deceiver of the human race. It predicts that the Saviour will be victorious over him. Genesis 3.15, one of the key verses in the Bible, tells us that there's hope. That there's going to be the seed of the woman. And it's going to crush the head of the serpent. And of course that's speaking of Jesus having victory over Satan. Revelation, of course, is the book that really details how all of those things are going to happen. It's the, the last concluding book, and records in advance... Satan's destiny and ultimate defeat. So that's why Satan hates those two books. I'm sure he hates every book in the Bible. But those two certainly seem to get a lot of attention. And there's so many spurious ideas and theories that are thrown around to try and get people confused, to take them away from the truth and simplicity of God's word. Again, the book of Revelation ties together all the Old and New Testament prophecies. You know, you can't just be a New Testament Christian uh, I know a minister once who made that bold claim thinking it was a positive thing. And it's nothing of the sort. You know, you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. But actually we find in the book of Revelation, in the 404 verses here, we have 800 allusions to the Old Testament. This book is drawn from the Old Testament. All the ideas and visions that John will see, John has some sort of understanding because of the Old Testament. And if you know the Old Testament, then a lot of these things make sense. And we'll be referring much to some of the prophecies in the Old Testament as we go through. So we find that this book is really a book that interprets itself from what God has already revealed. And that's important to understand because there's so many weird ideas and theories about how we should interpret this book. But they're all based upon man's opinion. And that's no good because we can all have different opinions. So 
No, we find that God has given us in his word everything we need to know to understand this book. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, 20, Peter says that there is no scripture that's of private interpretation. So it's not something that one individual stumbles across something. This is something that's there that we can all find. And as I said last time, the book of Revelation is given to us so that we should know these things. That's in the opening verse of the book. Just to give you a brief overview of the chapters, we didn't do this last week, but just to give you a kind of an overview of where we're going. Obviously chapter one we started last week, but it's going to go on and we'll look in a moment at this incredible vision of Jesus. In chapter two and three, uh, we're going to find there these letters that are written by Jesus to these seven churches that we'll mention uh, in our study this morning. In chapters 4 and 5, we're called up to heaven and we see this vision of the throne room and what seems to be the title deed to planet earth and this multitude around the throne praising Jesus. Then begins this time that Jesus himself refers to in the Gospel of Matthew as the beginning of sorrows. Now, we'll talk in detail and we'll go through and we'll show scripturally how these things are understood and found out. But we have two periods of three and a half years. And actually there are 1,260 days each period. So not quite, uh, it's a 360 day year is the way it's calculated in Revelation. And we'll explain that as we go through. But then we begin this period of time, this first three and a half years. In chapter 6 we find that these seven seals are opened. And that's when we start to see judgment being poured out on the world. In chapter 7, we're given this vision again back up in heaven. This 144,000 are sealed on the earth and then a great multitude are taken out of the earth. And some people think that's the rapture of the church and we'll talk in detail about why I believe that's not the rapture. That's another group that come to know the Lord. And this I will will explain when we get there in chapter 7. But this is why we need to be talking to people right now. Because the Bible indicates, this chapter 7 indicates that there will be a number of people that will come to the Lord after the rapture and after the tribulation has begun. They suddenly will realize that the things you've been telling them were true. And that's why it's really important that we tell those around us about what God is going to do. So when these events happen, it won't come as, well it will come as a shock and surprise in the world. But for those that we've told, suddenly they'll realize. And there'll be a lot of people turning to God. You know, even the Twin Towers in America... The sales of Bibles in America for the few months following that went up quite significantly. People suddenly realized, hang on, we need hope, we need something to hold on to. And they started turning to God and turning to churches and going reading the Bible and things as a result of the Twin Towers. But in chapters 8 and 9 we get the seven trumpets that are blown. As each trumpet is blown, more judgment is poured out upon the earth. And then chapter 10 really important chapter, some people misunderstand it, but it's where we find an angel that will declare time is no more. Now some people think that that means that suddenly time will cease and we'll just enter into some kind of floaty eternity. That's not what it means. What it's saying is that time is up, there is no more time. The egg timer, if you like, has run out. Now, God is going to pour his wrath out. You see, this is why Jesus spoke of that beginning of sorrows. It's a start of what's going to happen. Then, We get to the real time. But before we get there, we kind of go back to the beginning of the three and a half years. So we kind of jump back to that beginning of that time. And we're introduced to two witnesses who were witnessed in Jerusalem. Then we get to this break, this middle of the week, middle of this seven year period, so three and a half years in. And we see a a strange vision, the woman and the dragon, and we'll detail that when we get there. Then we're introduced to Antichrist, referred to as the beast and a false prophet, a religious leader who would unite the world. You know, even in our lifetime, 
If you go back, for those of you who are probably older than 25, you know, you think back and even then there was that, would we really get to a one world church? Would that ever really happen? And people have been talking about it, of course, for a long time. And now, as we saw last week, we have a Pope who is effectively calling for a one world church. He's saying it doesn't matter what religion you are, whether you're Catholic, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. We all worship the same God, is what he said. Calling us all together. Interestingly, I was speaking again to a Muslim during the week. They believe the same thing. They believe that there'll be a one world church, but they think it's a good thing. They think that all religions will, will come together. But they, of course, see that coming under the banner of Islam. So the world is getting ready for this. We're right on the doorstep of this happening now. You know, just to mention, actually, you know, all this situation at the moment with Daesh or ISIL, ISIS, whatever term you want to, to give them, you know, again, a lot of Muslims totally reject what they are doing. And the interesting thing is that it's drawing religions together. Because they're all uniting in their hatred of this group. Now, if that group are done away with and destroyed, the end result will be a lot more unity amongst the religions of the earth. So we're seeing these things before our eyes. Chapter 14, the 144,000 that we saw sealed uh, back in chapter 7 are then caught up to the throne. We'll talk about them. We're actually told they're from the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. They're Jewish people. We'll talk about that. Then we get to the Great Tribulation. This will be the last three and a half years of this seven-year period. And the first thing that happens is these seven vials or bowls of judgment are poured out upon the earth. And if you remember I said a moment ago, chapter 10, that's really time's up. All these little bits we just mentioned are kind of fitting in the middle there. And now we get to this point that God pours his judgment on the world. This is unrestrained judgment because of the iniquity of man, because of the sin, because of all the horrible things that we read about in the newspapers, the things you read and you think, how could that possibly be? How could anybody do those kind of things? You know, and even this week, some of the, the stories that we've, we've seen that have made headlines, it's incredible. But then we get another parenthesis in a sense, uh, it takes us back, I believe, to the beginning of this seven-year period. And we're introduced to this religious system. And we're given a lot of detail about it. But then we follow it through and we see the destruction of it. Which again I believe will occur at about the three and a half year point halfway through. And we'll explain all that and go into detail. And then we come forward again to the end of the seven years. We speak of the marriage of the Lamb as the bride of Christ. That's you and I. The bride of Christ are joined, or the bride is joined to Christ. In the book of Ephesians Paul says... Marriage itself is simply there to foreshadow, to give an indication of what God wants to do in joining the church to Jesus. That's what marriage is for. Marriage is all about that. So that our marriages, as we go through and learn to love the ones that we love, really all of that is just a shadow of the way it should be. That husbands should love their wives unconditionally, just as Christ loved the church. And the wives should love and respect and honour their husbands. And it's such a, a wonderful piece of, of scripture we find in Ephesians that speaks of this, this marriage. And of course, in Revelation here, chapter 19, we hear this mention of this marriage supper, which is then followed by the second coming as Jesus returns to earth with his bride. And then 
It brings us to the end of this order of things. Because then we move into the millennial kingdom. As Jesus is established as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he sits on the throne of David, rules from Jerusalem. Now following that period of a thousand years where Jesus will rule, at the end of that time, this heaven and earth are are done away with. Peter speaks about the, the big bang. Not the beginning that some people think, but the one at the end. where Everything dissolves. And then people find themselves before the great white throne. All those who had not accepted the offer, the free offer of salvation, will stand before God. And God will judge them according to their works. What a scary thing that is. If you just think about that, God will judge them according to what they have done. Every thought, every action, every deed, everything that has happened in your life, everything you've said, all those flippant remarks, everything will be taken into account. And you see, the the good things won't matter. When you stand before a judge, it doesn't matter what good things you've done, you are there because of the crime you've committed. And that then leads us on to chapter 21 and 22, and we'll enjoy that very much as we start to see this vision that John sees of the new heavens and a new earth. And that is breathtaking as we start to get into that and look at the detail of what God has planned for those that love him. In John's Gospel, John wrote his Gospel, I believe, after he'd returned from Patmos. So he'd had the revelation that he records. He then returns from Patmos, uh, returns to Ephesus, where seemingly he's the pastor there from various historical accounts. And as part of the, the time there, he seems to write the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John bears so many similarities in structure to Revelation. We find sevens all the way through the Gospel of John. You may not have noticed it before, but they're there. There's seven I am statements and many others that we could mention. But the, the key theme of the Gospel of John is this word believe. It occurs a hundred times. But it's not just a hope kind of belief type thing it's the greek word um, pisteo means to have faith in or upon or with respect to a person or a thing so simply by implication this word believe means to entrust especially our spiritual well-being to christ that's what john is speaking about you see john has come back i believe from patmos he's seen this revelation that we're going to be looking at in just a moment And he sees Jesus in a totally different way. And he writes his gospel, not like Matthew, Mark and Luke had done to record events, but to make a point. To make the point that Jesus is God. And the whole of his gospel is set about that. There's loads of details that John doesn't record. That the other gospel writers do. Things that you would think would be key. If you were going to write about Jesus, you'd write a lot of the miracles and so on. John doesn't bother with a lot of that. He gets to this point that you might believe that we would have our trust and our hope in Jesus. You know, the question then, why should anyone entrust their spiritual well-being to Christ? You know, if Jesus were just a man, as, for example, the Muslims would argue and many others would argue, the Jehovah's Witnesses and so on, if he's just a man, if he's an example to follow, well, there's no reason to trust Jesus with our spiritual well-being. He wouldn't be any more help than any other person, even though he might be good. But as John points out, Jesus is not merely a man. But he's the Son of God. He's an advocate with the Father. 
He's one with the Father. So the most important and most sensible thing anyone can do is to entrust their spiritual well-being to Christ. Now I mentioned that this morning because as we look at this revelation, I want you to realize that it's this Jesus that John was writing about in his gospel. And I believe it's on the back of this vision that he had, that he pleads with people to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus for your spiritual well-being. In 1 John 4, 14, John makes a statement there that Jesus is the saviour of the world. John 14, 6, a scripture we know well, we're told that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And once you've seen Jesus as he is, none of those things are doubted from that point on. So let's move into chapter 1. And last time, remember, we just talked about the brief structure that we have uh, the, in chapter 1, we've just got this prologue, this kind of introduction to the book itself. And then we have the greeting from John, but also from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then we move into what we're going to study this morning, this vision of Jesus. There's eight characteristics here the, of Jesus uh, that John is going to comment on. We're going to pick it up in verse 10, uh, which is where we left off last time. So... Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 and we read, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now we looked at the first part of that last week, but just to mention again, John is saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's not on a Sunday, but it's the equivalent phrase we find in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. John effectively is moved forward in time. In Rome they used to have Emperor's Day which would proclaim the might of the emperor and so on. Well, John is now saying, this is the Lord's day. This is when God is going to proclaim his might and his sovereignty. And again, John moved forward in time to see these visions that I believe are right on our horizon now. And so the first characteristic we see here, that John says, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, it wasn't a trumpet. Remember we said last week this term as appears a number of times in the book, John is trying to describe as best as he can the things that he's seeing. And this was all happening, I'm sure, very quickly for John. So to try and then write this down, he's giving us the best he can, and I've no doubt inspired of God, to write down these things. It wasn't a trumpet, but it had the power and the clarity of a trumpet. You know, a lot of instruments don't have that clarity. But, you know, ancient cultures and armies always used to use trumpets to sound Alarms and things for battle. In Israel, they had that. To, to signal winter, to march or retreat or so on. The trumpet, the sound of a trumpet carries. And all this really is telling us is that the clarity of this voice was like a trumpet. And isn't that true of our, our own understanding that Jesus speaks with clarity into our lives? You know, when Jesus speaks, really, it should be unmissable. The problem is... Sometimes we've allowed the world to become the dominant voice. And so there's so much noise from the world in our heads and our minds and our hearts that we don't always hear Jesus. Sometimes we're just not expecting him to speak. A little bit like Samuel. But the moment we're aware that Jesus is speaking, there's that clarity. And there is something simple about the sound that a trumpet makes, and it is the same with Jesus as well. You know, his call is so simple. We're told that his burden is light. But it's the ramifications of that, which is where the complexity comes from. It's the call upon our lives 
That's not normally the problem. There's a number of us here this morning that had that call and maybe tried to run away from it for a little while, the kind of Jonah situation. It's like, put your fingers in the ears, no, I can't hear. But you know that call is there, you cannot get away from it. Some people have spent years running only to come back because the call is still the same. It's just like a trumpet sound. Relentless, it's there, you cannot get away from it. We carry on, verse 11 then says, this voice behind him that John hears saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So, now we see back in chapter, back in verse 8 of chapter 1, God was speaking. We mentioned that last time. And Jesus now makes this claim that he is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now, back as we said last week in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 41 verse 4, 44 verse 6, and 48 verse 12, and elsewhere, God is the first and the last. And there is no other. So if God is first and last and there's no other, and Jesus is the first and last, for both of those things to be true, Jesus has to be God. It's as simple as that. It's a verse that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't particularly like, and it was worth pointing out to them. If you do, they will turn to their Bible, and they'll find this verse is not in there. Which is another thing you can point out to them. But this verse is scripture. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first the last. And then we're told, what thou seest, write and over, can send it unto the seven churches. Now, seven, as we said last time, simply means complete. That's what, throughout scripture, a number of examples we can cite of that. But why these seven churches? You know, there's a number of other churches. Antioch, yet one of the key churches. Or Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem. Surely that was, you know, higher on the list of, of importance. But God chooses these seven churches for a specific reason. And remember back in verse 3, we're told that this book is a book of prophecy. Now, looking again, this is the area uh, in modern-day Turkey where all of these seven churches are located. The Isle of Patmos, just off the coast around this area here. Now, we're going to get to the seven churches, Lord willing, next week in chapter 2 and 3. But what we'll see is there's four levels of meaning to these letters that are sent. There's a local application but there's a personal application too, because we're told that whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. There's also the message to all churches, because the, we're told at the end of the letter, let, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So although these letters were specific to a church, they're also general to all churches. So we'll explain and draw this out next week. But I also see here and believe we have the prophetic history of the church laid out. Seven distinct church ages represented by these churches. Remember again, this is a book of prophecy. And we'll deal with that, we'll look at that in far more detail next time. Those again are our churches. Ephesus simply means, the name means the love of espousal. Smyrna is a name really drawn from the word myrrh. You're familiar with myrrh, it's one of the gifts that were given by the major to Jesus. The word means suffering. Pergamos means mixed marriage, and we'll look at more details as we get there. But it's the, the gamos, the word we get uh, for marriage from, uh, polygamy and monogamy, those kind of, is the idea of marriage. And per, as you put it before a word, like pervert, and so on, so it's mixed marriage, you're twisting or making the marriage something it shouldn't be. Thyatira, the name means continual sacrifice. Sardis means remnant. 
Philadelphia has the connotations of brotherly love. And then finally, Laodicea simply means the rule of the people. Now, this is the order that we're giving these churches in. And in this order, they map out the history of the church. And next week, we'll look at that in detail. But they also map out or echo the history of Israel. And it's fascinating as you see the design in Scripture of what God has revealed. So, let's carry on. Verse 12, John says, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps of the breast with a golden girdle. The first thing here, John says, And I turned. That's a verse that we could spend a morning on. Spurgeon would probably spend a whole morning just speaking on that. But that's the first step we must take. When we hear the voice of Jesus, we must turn to him. You know, we've got to turn away from whatever has been our focus and turn to Jesus. And that's the hard part for people. They think they might lose out on something by turning to Jesus. Many people in the world think, I don't want to become a Christian because I'd have to give up things. Yet when you turn to Jesus, there's no giving up of anything. You willingly lay aside those things that once you thought there was gain in. As Paul said, that he considers those things that he once said, he considers them just loss, just rubbish, compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus. So that is the first step that we have to take. But notice you're not forced to do so. John wasn't forced to do so. There wasn't a voice that said, turn around. He just hears a voice. And then John turns And the first challenge for all of us here, as we start to look at this vision of Jesus Christ, is we have to turn to him and lay aside everything else. Jesus now becomes our focus. Then, we're told that John turned to see the voice. Now that's an interesting expression because you kind of, you know what it means, it's to see the one who's speaking. But we have that expression, and interestingly, back in the Garden of Eden, if you remember, Adam hid from the voice. It's the same voice. Back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.8, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. How can a voice walk? Well, even back then, the personification of God. Walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God, amongst the trees of the garden. It's the same voice back then that speaks now. And has spoken down through the ages. It's a voice that called all the prophets of old, called Samuel, called Samson, and just so many others. And then John says that this voice that spoke with him said, being turned, the first thing that John notices, he says, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, probably a better way to translate would be lampstands. You see, John would probably be very familiar with the, the symbolism of this. Because he'd be familiar with the menorah. Menorah, we'll show you a picture in just a second. It was the seven-branched lampstand that had been made, given the instructions by God to Moses, had been made for the tabernacle, and then eventually placed in the temple by David. That's what the menorah would look like, something like this, with this center pole and these branches either side. Now, these bits at the top, they were dishes in which you'd put oil, and then you'd light them. So the lampstand itself... All it was was something that would bear light. Now this is, we're going to see, symbolic of the church. Because we are to bear light. We don't produce light ourselves, but an oil is placed within us, the Holy Spirit. 
and then we bear light. Interestingly, under the, the Jewish system, the menorah was hidden. It was within the tabernacle. It was behind closed doors. The light wasn't shed around the world. But now the church, the Lord has spread around the world to show his light to the world. Now, in the midst of the candlesticks, we're told, you see, we're going to see this vision of Jesus, but notice that he's in the midst of the lampstand or the, the candlesticks as we're given. And what we seem to have here is not the menorah. John isn't seeing a, a menorah, I believe, but in the middle of seven individual lampstands. Jesus is there. Just to, to give you some sort of idea, this is one kind of rendering that these seven lampstands and Jesus was standing in the midst. Some see it as possibly a circle of these lampstands and Jesus standing right in the middle. The first thing that takes John's attention is these lampstands. But notice the important thing is that Jesus is in the midst, just as Jesus is in the midst of the church now. And we'll talk more about that. And then we're told that John sees one unto the Son of Man. Now, Albert Barnes, like, but like his rendering, he says, the expression rendered like unto the Son of Man simply means like unto the Son of Man. That is, like a man, a human being, or in human form. So John is seeing someone that looks just like a human being. But then we're going to see some serious contrasts with just an ordinary human being. Because then we're told, clothed with a garment down to the foot. Now this is some sort of robe or cloak that Jesus is wearing. John is just doing his best to explain. And this is the first thing he notices about Jesus. And I think that should just grab our attention. He's heard the voice, first of all, he's now turned, and he now looks, he's the seven candlesticks, and suddenly his focus is drawn to the one in the centre of these candlesticks. And he notices his cloak. Why is that significant? Well, because it indicates authority. You know, it's kind of cloak that would be worn by a king. You know, if the the queen were to go out shopping in just jeans and a blouse, probably she could be mistaken for someone else. But when she wears her royal robes, there is no mistake. You know, a judge, when they are presiding... They don't, again, turn up in jeans and a t-shirt. They wear their robes. And you know that authority because of what they're wearing. I see it every day in going to London and back. Businessmen. You know, if you wear one of those short jackets, you're not really a proper businessman, are you? When you wear one of those long back coats, then you have authority. Then you expect people to move for you. But Jesus is wearing this robe. Joseph, you know, his robe that was given to him was given to show his exalted status, exalted above it, above his brethren. His father's favour was upon him. And John, I believe, had never seen Jesus like this. Jesus, of course, had worn that seamless robe. But that was, in a sense, everyday clothing. Nothing really special about that. I mean, it was simple, and there's studies you could do on that in itself. But John is now looking at Jesus with his proper clothing on. Seen in this authority. And I think this probably just takes John a little bit by surprise. It's the first thing he records for us. It's like the authority. Suddenly John is probably thinking about the one that he'd walked along the shores of Galilee with. He's seen the suffering servant, but he's never seen before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Even after the resurrection. There's no indication that Jesus was portrayed in anything other than what the disciples had known him wearing and, and the look and the appearance. 
other than of course his new body that could walk through walls and so on. But now, Jesus has put on his robes of state as it were. And suddenly John is taken aback by this incredible sight that he sees and I'm sure becomes aware of his own inadequacy. I mean imagine just in that situation that you'd laughed and joked and chatted with Jesus and so on and suddenly now you see him and you realise the authority that he has. I mean what's it going to be like for us on that day when we go and are caught up in the air to see Jesus and we see him as he is. The one that we pray to. And sometimes we pray so casually as Jesus is our friend. And and of course there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is also the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The second thing that John records for us about his attire is this girt about the the breast, perhaps with a, a golden girdle. A golden breastplate. One of a better expression. <coughs> Barnes, Albert Barnes says, this would naturally suggest the idea of one of rank, probably one of princely rank. The raiment here assumed was not that of a priest, but that of a king. You think of the Roman emperors, you think of the kind of costumes and so on that they would have worn. And very often you see soldiers with these kind of silver a bronze kind of breastplates, but this is a golden breastplate, something that was reserved for the highest position of all. It also speaks of Christ's righteousness, I believe. I mean, gold, pure gold is used a number of times in Scripture, but Isaiah 59, 16-17 just says there, And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Just a, a vision that Isaiah has and is recorded there back in Isaiah. Ephesians 6.14 also speaks of that breastplate of righteousness. But in contrast with the breastplate that the high priest would have worn back in Exodus 28... It was referred to, the breastplate of the high priest was referred to as the breastplate of judgment. But Jesus now, the judgment has been done. The sacrifice has been dealt with. Jesus is now there as the king. So he's got this robe, this golden breastplate that no doubt would have reflected the light. And then we're told, John is suddenly drawn now to his head and hairs, which were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Okay, let's just look at this first thing, this pure head and hair. Barnes again makes a comment, he says, exceedingly or perfectly white. The first suggestion to the mind of the apostle being that that of wool, and then the thought occurring of this extreme whiteness resembling snow, the purest white of which the mind conceives. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, hair denotes authority there. It's used in that way. In Daniel 7 verse 9, the white hair was typical of an elder statesman or emperor. It also denotes authority. You know, we often speak of those that have grey hair or hair that's white, you look at them with a with a slightly different view, sometimes more respect, because you recognise the age and the experience and the maturity. And all of these things seem to be combined in this vision. Then we're told that his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, 
But arms against it was bright, sharp, penetrating as if everything was light before them. Or they would penetrate into the thoughts of people. Well, I'm sure we're familiar, familiar with Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You start to build up this picture of Jesus. John, first of all, again, this voice, this clarity, this authority of the voice. He then turns, he sees this one that's clothed in this cloak. Again, the authority, the, the, again, the breastplate, that of a, a king. Now seeing these eyes, penetrating eyes, looking at John. John probably feeling just like Isaiah did. When Isaiah was before the throne in chapter 6 of Isaiah, which says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. I wonder how John felt as he's suddenly seeing this, and Jesus looking at him. I mean, what would it be like if Jesus were to look at you? Not just the surface, but looking straight into your heart. Daniel chapter 10 verse 6, there's a reference there, we can see that, it it speaks of his eyes being a lamp of fire. It's just brilliance of Jesus' eyes. You know, you, you get to know somebody by their eyes, don't you? When you make eye contact with somebody and you look into their eyes, you start to see the person rather than just the shell. Sometimes you look at somebody's eyes and you can see that there's they're all coldness, they're all harshness. But then you look at somebody else's eyes and you see a love and a warmth. For us, as we look into Jesus' eyes, again, his eyes are fire, just seeing beyond the natural. And then we're told, as John starts to try and comprehend this whole vision before him, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a fire. Well, this feet... Now brass is a, a metal associated with judgment throughout scripture. And fine brass possibly indicating that this is perfect judgment. Isaiah 63, 3-6 speaks there. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone and of the people there was none with me. And I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. It goes on speaking of the judgment that God will bring. Speaking again of the feet of the Lord meeting out this this judgment upon the earth. And then we're told his voice is the sound of many waters. That's just John doing his best to try and convey to us what he's hearing and seeing. And it indicates it's the power of voice, not just the audible volume, but the strength and the authority. You know, sometimes you don't have to shout to have authority. Sometimes that quiet voice can carry so much more weight. If you're a parent, you know what it's like with your children. You can shout at them and sometimes they almost become accustomed to that. But sometimes they're very quiet. Come here. And it just has so much weight that you know, your children start to... <laughs> but Jesus' voice is the sound of many waters. Think of the, the water of a, a waterfall or something like that. Interestingly enough, you can't turn back water. Nor can you stand against the words of Jesus. Jesus said, as we said earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no counsel of man that can ever stand in opposition to this. You know, man will try. 
In Ezekiel 43 verse 2 it says, And behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel, came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. This expression that used a number of times in Scripture. His voice was like the noise of many waters. Later on in Revelation chapter 14, we'll see, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, which is what harpers do, by the way. But he hears this voice, again, the power that's there. Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty 30, tells us this though. The same voice, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is just the same authority in those words as in any other words that Jesus speaks. John fifteen fifteen says, Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Jesus, the one who has his voice like many waters, the one who has this authority, says that you and I are his friends. This is incredible. As you start to kind of comprehend this vision that John is seeing. Then we're told, verse 16, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. Just mention the seven stars first of all. Verse 20 is going to tell us that these seven stars are the angels, or literally the messengers, to the seven churches. Now, as we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, these individuals here, these angels or messengers, Seem to be the pastors of these churches, as we're going to know, because they're ones whom letters are written unto. And we'll talk about the various characteristics of these people. The word in, in Greek that's translated angels could also be translated messengers. It means the same thing. It doesn't necessarily refer to an angelic being in a sense, in that sense. So we'll talk about more of that next week. But what a comfort, if that is the case, to find that these pastors are held in his hand. I find that very comforting. But then we're told that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, we're familiar with the sword of faith that we read about in Ephesians 6 as being the word of God. And there may be some kind of allusion to that here as well. Hebrews 4.12 also tells us that the word of God is a two-edged sword. But actually, the word that we have here, John Valdewood highlights uh, in his great book, and if you want to get a good commentary, uh, this is a very, very good commentary by John Valvoud uh, on the book of Revelation. Um, he says here that the word is not for a short, a short, close combat sword. That's the kind of sword that's mentioned in those other passages. But this is rather a long, heavy sword. It's mentioned five times in the book of Revelation. It's not used for wounding, such as maybe the others would be, but for killing. And... He comments this, he says, The sword mentioned in Revelation has the character of a sword of devastating judgment rather than a sword uncovering unbelief. See, the other swords have a purpose, those short combat swords. But they were usually for for wounding, for cutting open and so on, not necessarily for killing. Whereas this sword really has just one purpose. 
And it's, it's used here for the slaying of the wicked. Now this is a strange kind of thing for us to think about. That Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's the impression that so many people in the world have. Is standing here with these eyes of fire, with these feet of brass. Ready for treading the winepress of the wrath of, of God. He's standing here with this sword, getting ready to slay the wicked. But then, you start to think of the wicked in this world. You start to think of all those things that are, are so unjust. You think of some of the regimes that exist around the world. Then you think of even just some of the things that go on in this country. You know, think of some of the horrible, horrific cases of child abuse that we've heard over recent years. You know, people being enslaved and so many things that we could go off and talk about, but you know, there's so many things that are just sickening. Well, this is Jesus standing here ready to come and bring judgment upon this earth. It's the same Jesus that has welcomed us. It's the same Jesus that has bled and died on a cross. The same Jesus that rose again and has given us new life. The same Jesus that called us with that gentle voice. And really, you see the contrast. You can either come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, be called a friend, or you're going to know Jesus as a judge who brings justice. It's also told that his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. You remember back in the Old Testament, Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, up Mount Sinai, and when he comes down, he's glowing because of being in the presence of God. And all the people suddenly go, whoa, and Moses goes, what? And no doubt somebody tells him, and from that point he kind of wears a veil for a while. Well, that's just somebody being in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. This is God himself. And we're told, again, his countenance was the sun shining in its strength. Literally, it's as the sun without clouds. I mean, you know what the, well, I say you know, it's probably been a long time since the sun shined without any clouds, but it has happened in the past. It's beautiful. When the sun is shining and there's no clouds in the sky, and you just feel the heat of the sun. Natural eyes, of course, can't bear the wonder and brilliance of the sun, and neither can we bear the wonder and brilliance of his face. You know, Paul, when he sees Jesus in that vision on the road to Damascus, ends up with permanent eye trouble, I believe is a direct result of looking at Jesus. John here, as we're going to see in the next verse, will fall down as dead. Just overwhelmed with Jesus. We're told in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 that the Antichrist is going to be consumed by the brightness of his coming. I mean, that's going to be a real disappointment to the world who have put their hope in Antichrist and are expecting some sort of battle. And even before swords are drawn, Antichrist is just consumed by the brightness of Jesus' coming. I mean, nobody in this world is a match for Jesus. And the idea that man could ever a massive army as will happen to try and defeat Jesus Christ is just so foolish. Albert Barnes says again, 
appearance assumed is evidently in accordance with the various representations of God as he appeared to Ezekiel, to Isaiah, and to Daniel. This is what a suitable manifestation of a divine being, of one clothed in the majesty and the power of God. Just as God had appeared to those people in the Old Testament, so now we see God manifest in the flesh, appearing to John. And John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Once again, he doesn't say he, say he was dead, he says he fell at his feet as dead. So overwhelmed, just almost lifeless, just laying there. Doesn't say so, but I'm pretty sure that John would have been face down. Just not sure what to say. Again, Jesus had been John's friend, but now John is seeing Jesus in a totally different way. John had never seen Jesus with this authority. I mean, if Jesus had stood before Pilate, as he is seen here, Pilate would have just crumbled. No doubt these thoughts going through John's head as well. Maybe John just dared not move. Suddenly thinking about all those times and now seeing for himself who Jesus really is. And then we're told, his right hand upon me. He laid his right hand upon me. That's incredible. And just to mention that the seven stars were in his right hand. And I think this is quite significant because it's with this hand that he comforts John and reveals himself. But what was in that hand? Well, really, those seven stars seemingly representing of the pastors of the seven churches. It's through the church that God comforts those who have ears to hear. God's right hand is reaching out to the world through the church. It's through the church he's chosen to reveal himself to the world. And of course, through his word, which is what the church should be proclaiming. Any church that is not proclaiming the word... Might as well just shut the doors and go home. And then Jesus says, Fear not. <laughs> I am the first and the last. You know, some scholars make quite a big thing of this fear not. And, you know, saying that John shouldn't have been frightened and so on. But, you know, any human being seeing Jesus like this, there's that kind of like, well, just, even if you were to go to Buckingham Palace and stand before the Queen, there would be that kind of anxiety of, how do I stand? What do I do? Where do I look? Well, this is before the King of Kings. No, no wonder John had a fear, but Jesus says, fear not. And John, hearing that voice that he'd known, but in a totally different way, with this authority and power, that Jesus, remember, had chosen to lay aside. He laid aside the glory and the majesty that he had from the creation of the world to come into this world for us. But now, once again, Clothed with that authority. And he says, I am the first and the last. What a comfort to know that Jesus was there before the beginning began. And will be there after the end has ended. You know, Jesus was already seen tomorrow. That's why we don't need to be afraid of whatever will come. Verse 18, it says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I mean, just in case John was in any doubt, Jesus making it absolutely clear, John, I am the one that was living. Yes, I was dead. But now I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And he says, and have the keys of hell and death. Literally, Jesus is sovereign over physical death. He's now got the keys. He's in charge. 
He came to meet our greatest need, which was death. You know, people say, you know, well, if, if God was really there, well, why doesn't he you know, stop world hunger? Well, that's not our greatest problem. Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of hunger. People may say, well, you know, if, if God's true, if there was Jesus, why didn't he solve the problem of poverty? Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of poverty. That wasn't our greatest need. That wasn't our greatest problem. People may say, well, why do people suffer? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of suffering for us. That wasn't our greatest need. Our greatest need was death. And Jesus came to meet that need. He solved that problem. He died in our place. He defeated death. And now anyone who puts their trust in him, even if he dies, will live forever. Because we've been promised a resurrection. We've been promised eternal life. Death no longer has any hold over us. For Christians, when a Christian dies, it's a time to rejoice. Because all that has happened is you've transitioned from this earthly realm to the heavenly realm where you will live for eternity with God. Death doesn't need to be feared anymore. Just as Paul writes for us in the book of Corinthians, death, where is thy victory? Grave, where is thy sting? We're told he has the keys over Hades, effectively is the, the word in the Greek here, Hades and death. In the Old Testament we have the word Sheol that's often used as well. Hades is the place for departed souls. Scripturally, it seems to be located in the centre of the earth. People that die go down into Hades. Hell, Hades, Sheol, it's a, a reference to all the same. Not talking about the eternal lake of fire that also is referred to as hell. Hell is used to refer to both things. But he's talking about this place to depart his souls. Jesus has the keys. So nobody's getting out of there without Jesus' authority. Now believers that had died prior to the cross were set free from Hades at the time of the resurrection. We're told that Jesus led captivity captive. Those who were in that place in the earth at the time of the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus went and presented himself to them. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the one who was going to come. Adam, Noah, Lot. Lot made that declaration that he knew that in his flesh he would see God. He said, even if this body dies, he said, for I know my Redeemer lives. But you see, no one can go to heaven. No one can stand before the Father but through Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And it was the same for all of the Old Testament saints. So they all had to have an opportunity to put their trust in him. And they were held in his holding place up until Jesus comes with the keys. He unlocks it. He sets them free. And they're now waiting in heaven for the rapture. When they will come back, they will be given new bodies. And then together with them, we will arise to meet the Lord in the air. The unbelievers will stay there, with the door locked, waiting for the great white throne judgment, which will occur at the end of this book of Revelation, at the end of this order of things. After the millennial reign, we get to that great white throne. And then John is given his commission, verse 19. Write the things which I have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So we're really given a divinely inspired outline for the book here. Because John is told to do three things. Firstly, write the things you've seen. Okay, well that's what we've seen in chapter 1 so far. 
And of course, John then gives us a little introduction and the, the so on. But writes the things that he's seen, the vision of Jesus. So important for us to understand. I would encourage you to go back home today and read this again. And just spend a little bit of time looking at these attributes of Jesus, the way John sees him. And then John is told to write the things which are. Now, at the time that John lived, these churches that these letters were to go to were the things that were at the time. So that's what we have in chapter 2 and 3. And then to write the things which shall be hereafter. The Greek word is metatauta, means after these things. And that will take us from chapter 4 to the end of the book. And John will record all of those things for us. Then we're just given a word of explanation in closing the chapter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou saw in my right hand, Jesus speaking, and the seven golden candlesticks. So really, Jesus is saying, oh, John, these seven stars that you've, you've seen in my right hand, oh, the seven golden lampstands, the candlesticks, let me tell you what they are, what they represent. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, which he holds in his hand. And the seven golden candlesticks you've seen are the seven churches themselves. Again, John sees Jesus standing in the midst of these. Just as Jesus has stood in the midst of the church throughout the history of the church. See, the churches are represented by the lamps. These lampstands, they hold the oil and the fire and they dispense the light. Again, the lamp ourselves, we're not the light. We simply shine forth that light. To know one church in itself can be that light, but God through his Holy Spirit working can cause that light to be shed abroad. Adam Clark says this in closing. The churches are represented by these lamps. They hold the oil and the fire and dispense the light. The lamp is not light in itself. It is only the instrument of dispensing light. Then it must receive both oil and fire before it can dispense any so no church has in itself either grace or glory. It must receive all from Christ its head. Else it can dispense neither light nor life. You know, as we close this morning now, we see this incredible vision of Jesus, but we're told that where two or three are gathered together, he's there in our midst. Not the, the babe of Bethlehem. Not the Jesus that stood before Pilate. But the Jesus that we see here, in his majesty, in his glory, getting ready to bring judgment upon this world. And yet we have the privilege of being able to worship him. Even more amazingly, that he's the groom and we're his bride. You know, we get, as the church, the privilege of marrying this individual. This one who is so wonderful, so glorious, with these incredible eyes that burn with fire. So much to meditate on, to think through. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've been able to spend this morning just thinking of this vision that John saw of Jesus. But Lord, we recognize and know that this wasn't just some dream that John was having. That John was face to face with the glorified Jesus Christ. And Father, as we have that privilege of coming before the throne of grace, you've told us that we should pray in the name of Jesus. That we can come and 
call upon this individual that we've seen portrayed for us this morning. We can call on his name to stamp authority to the prayers and requests that we bring. This one who is clothed with such authority and power, the voice like many waters, the authority beyond imagination, that will stamp his seal and approval on the prayers that we bring in accordance with your will. And the same one who sees our suffering, who sees our pain. There is no higher power. And Father, we thank you that we can call Jesus our friend and even more that we know that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. So Father, help us to get ready for that wedding day. Lord, just speak to us. Wherever we are individually, whatever you're doing in our hearts and minds this morning, draw us closer to you, draw us closer to Jesus, we pray. For we ask it in his name. Amen.